Hello and welcome to the Palliative Care Journal Watch podcast by Pallium Canada for January 2023, where our panel of palliative care experts keep you informed of the latest peer-reviewed palliative care literature. Our host, Dr. Jose Pereira, is joined by special guests, Dr. Adrian Selby and Dr. Ainaran Sinaraja. If you'd like to access accompanying slides and links to the articles discussed in today's podcast, visit the link in the episode notes. This podcast is a collaboration between Pallium Canada and the Divisions of Palliative Care at Queen's University and McMaster University. It is a part of the Palliative Care ECHO Project, which aims to support continuous professional development among healthcare providers across Canada who care for patients with life-limiting illness. The Palliative Care ECHO Project is supported by financial contributions from Health Canada. However, the views expressed in today's episode do not necessarily represent the views of Health Canada. With no further ado, it's time for the Journal Watch. Hi everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Pallium ECHO Palliative Care Journal Watch. This is actually a milestone in that uh, we started this a year ago. So we're celebrating today our first birthday. So kudos to us and kudos to all of you who've joined us. The Pied of Care Echo Project, which is what the Journal Watch falls under, is a five-year national initiative to cultivate communities of practice and to establish um, continuous professional development opportunities for healthcare professionals across Canada. And it's supported by a financial contribution from Health Canada. I am Jose Pereira. And I'm a professor in the Division of Palliative Care in the Department of Family Medicine at McMaster University. I'm also the co-founder and scientific advisor of Pallium Canada and currently doing a stint at the University of Navarra, where I'm a professor at the Faculty of Medicine. And at this point, I'll turn over to my colleagues who are joining the panel today and will help present some of the papers and discuss them. First to Dr. Adrian Selby. Hi, I'm Adrian Selby. I'm, I'm an assistant professor at Queen's University in Kingston, doing palliative care clinical work as a palliative care specialist. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Karan Sinaraja here. I'm an associate professor at Queen's University, and clinically I work at Lake Ridge Health, and I also hold the chair in palliative care research uh, at both those institutions. Nice to be here. Some disclosures, which we have to do. Pallium Canada is a not-for-profit. It's been funded largely over the years by Health Canada and at times has received some funding for its various activities, including the LEAP courses and dissemination. We have many partnerships now with provincial bodies and, and some national bodies. The uh, revenues from LEAP courses are a, a large source of funding for the project. This particular series, the Journal Watch, is funded through the ECHO program, which is supported by Health Canada. As scientific advisor to Pallium, I do receive a stipend. And Dr. Adrian Selby and Dr. Ayungaran Sinaraja had no conflicts of interest to be declared. So our featured articles today are varied. The first one looks at the self-perceived burden for people with life-threatening illnesses. The second one looks at the dissemination of a screening tool called the Psychoexistential Symptom Assessment Scale, or PSAS. The third one we're going to look at and how advanced care planning can support hope in patients with advanced cancer and their families. And then the last one, which I'll present, is a paper looking at the treatment of positive urine cultures at the end of life, specifically in what is called a hospice unit. So the first one was published in the Journal of Pain and Symptom Management by a team led by Sachi. And 
In their background, the authors highlight the concern of being a burden to others is common among people with life-threatening illnesses. And then they also underscore how, despite it being very prevalent, and they do quote some papers, for example, if you, uh, one of the bullets there shows a study by Cosano and colleagues using a self-perceived burden scale, and they identify the prevalence of around 28% to 73% in patients with advanced cancer and neurological diseases. But despite that high prevalence, we still don't know a lot about this field. So that's why we thought this would be really interesting because um, it helps us start exploring this phenomenon more. It's a review, and the review questions was, what makes people with life-threatening illness develop self-perceived burden regarding their informal caregivers, so this is family or um, friends, and how do they experience the perception? So as I said, the study designs a systematic review and a thematic and a synthesis of qualitative primary data. So what they did was they looked for qualitative studies and they did a review of qualitative studies. And the methods they used are very aligned with best practices in terms of doing systematic and thematic analyses of qualitative studies. They did the search in September 2021. So in other words, if anything has been published since then, it will not be included in this review. And they identified nine studies with a total of 219 patients included in the studies, mostly with advanced diseases, and importantly, most of them requiring assistance, so indicating that they are now more in the more advanced stages of their illnesses. So the main findings, so six themes emerged. The first one was a sense of burden on, on, on informal caregivers and patients. The second one is that burden is experienced within lifelong relationships between patients, and their caregivers. The third one is that burden is a result of comparing hardships and lost opportunities. I'll come back to that. Burden is largely based on uncertainty, uncertainty of the future, uncertainty of what's going to happen. Importantly, it's very fluctuating. And this, this is important for our clinical practice, as we'll come back to shortly. And reactions to burden are part of the process. So when, when patients express burden, how do we respond to that? And how do they um, react as well when they share that with someone? So if we look at the first one, the sense of burden on informal caregivers and patients, what they found in these various studies were that patients felt physical, psychological, and social burdens towards their informal caregivers. So it's not just psychological, it's physical in a sense of they're going to have to turn me, they're going to have to wash me. And I must say, as I read this paper, I thought as well to my own personal experience with a, with a close family member, a few months ago, where, when he turned to me and expressed the burden that he was feeling in the context of very advanced disease. Burden caused significant distress for patients, so it wasn't something light most or often. So sometimes it was, but most of the times it was very distressing for patients, and consequently they described feelings of responsible for that situation, feelings of guilt, anger, and also of fear. For example, if the needs now go beyond what the caregiver is capable of then describe themselves as uh, useless, a failure, or having loss of control. And the feelings, the, so the feeling of burden sometimes made patients feel isolated or hopeless. They also described how hard it was to witness informal caregivers struggling with the burdens. In the second one, the burden is experienced within lifelong relationship between patients and informal caregivers. The longer the patient knew the person was looking after them, the more intense those feelings seem to be and more consequences of those feelings, such as the failure, the control, the, the feeling guilty, and also feeling responsible for the burden imposed upon those caregivers. 
I found number three quite interesting, and that is hardships and lost opportunities. Some patients, for example, in the studies described how, particularly the younger ones, because they were now coming towards the end of their lives, they were placing burden on a, a young spouse, a young partner to care for the rest of the family. And the sense of this is an opportunity, the opportunity being caring with, for my family, with my partner, with my spouse, is now being taken away. And that's a lost opportunity. And that featured within the sense of burden. The fluctuation of burden was very important. And they highlighted that because of that, it is extremely important that we keep coming back and visiting it with patients and reevaluating it with patients. So it's not something you ask once, it's something that you come back to every now and again, because it tends to change in intensity, and sometimes also in the way it is expressed, and also in the way it's experienced. So the main message of the authors was that self-perceived burden is a highly subjective perception based on uncertainty towards caregivers and the future. It's not static, it's also not temporary, but it's a fluctuating process, as I've just described, and therefore should be explored periodically and on an ongoing basis. It's highly subjective perception, and patients develop a burden feeling uncertain about the caregiver's perceptions, so they're not sure what the caregiver's experiencing, and sometimes they're not speaking and sharing that with the caregiver. So there's an opportunity there for us as care providers to open up the discussion between the patient and the caregivers. When I read this, I thought of you know, the approach that we often use, the educated guess, uh, for example. You know, patients, like yourself at this point of the illness will sometimes tell me that they're feeling a burden to their loved ones, they're feeling a burden to their caregivers. Is that how you are feeling? And obviously can say no, but, but then it also opens a conversation if they are feeling to say yes, and then one can explore that. And it would be excellent, I think, to do it in, uh, with the caregivers present. The authors highlighted that future research is needed to understand the concept of burden in non-Western countries and drawing from populations with more diverse diagnoses of life-threatening illness. So strengths of a systematic review, and I think that they use the methods that are aligned very well with systematic reviews of qualitative studies. Limitations include possible bias, as the review was primarily conducted by one author with consultation with the other authors. So often what you find is that in a qualitative study, you'll have two or three or more researchers who will independently code and start working on themes and then work together by consensus to identify the themes. There's a reliance on the pre-existing definition of self-perceived burden, and they feel this may have restricted the findings, and they only included papers published in English. At that point, let's open up for discussion. So I'm curious to hear what my colleagues thought of this and any connections with their clinical experiences. This article is very interesting to me, uh, Jose, in that it is something I've thought about, but I also have the sense of, if I find out about it, what can I do about it? And I... I worry about that sometimes. And so I don't know whether the panel has advice on how do we respond to this if that is a, you know, in the moment that is some uh, huge burden on my patient. I can say something about that. So I think some of the some of the articles that that I'll be discussing later kind of touch touch on that feeling of like being able to identify something and not being sure what to do as a barrier to, to talking about it. And I think 
as you say, like this, the people say things like this all the time, and it's a really common thing. And I, one of the things that I found very interesting in the article is is the placement of it within the relationship between the caregiver and the the patient, because I think that is really an area. And this, the other articles talk about this too, where you can make a big difference just by being the facilitator of a conversation between two people. And, and that's what I find in clinical experience too. That sometimes everyone's kind of holding their fears inside and trying to protect everybody else, and even just having a conversation can be really therapeutic. Yeah, I, I, I would totally concur with that. I think just having that conversation. And what I've been impressed about over the years is when we do have a discussion, when you have a patient and the caregivers present at the same time, when they express being a burden, invariably families will say or caregivers will say, you're not a burden. Yes, it's tiring, but you're not a burden. You're special to us. And it almost becomes a form of giving a person a sense of dignity. You might not be able to do what you were able to do before, but you mean a lot to us. You've been special to us. And this, and, and therefore, it's our turn to provide the care. I, I had that personal experience. It was interesting when, when the family member said that, surrounded by siblings, and I didn't say anything. Uh, it was my siblings that, that jumped in and, and, and said that. And it, it, it was very therapeutic, I must say. There is a comment uh, from one of the audience members, from Maria Rugg. And this was highlighted in one of the slides that there was a lack of non-English representation in the articles in the study. And so this concept of burden might be very grounded in cultural themes of death and dying and bereavement. And I would add family expectations uh, of caring for loved ones and the elderly. I do recall reading that one of the studies did come from Japan. The rest were, you know, Canada, Australia, UK. And Japan, I think of as having that different culture. Um, and so, I, again, uh, what can we hypothesize about uh, what this might look like in other cultures? Or maybe we shouldn't. Yeah, Ingrid, I'm glad you stressed that, that the papers weren't just from English-speaking countries. They came from also non-English-speaking countries. They were written in English. What they, what they did not include were papers published in say French or Spanish or Portuguese. But you know, I think over the years what I've noticed in these type of papers is that when something is published like this, it's almost a catalyst for this type of research to start occurring in those other countries. It's invariably you'll see a statement to the effect of has been studied in, you know, in such and such country, but not here. And so we're doing the study. So I, I think these papers are very helpful. For me, the big take on this here was Keep us open up the conversation, open up the discussion, and keep going back to it because it can fluctuate so much. Adrian, over to you. Uh, the next article is a psychoexistential symptom assessment scale, abbreviated to PSAS, screening and palliative care from the Journal of Pain and Symptom Management. I think this ties in really nicely to the article we just had, like searching for ways of kind of bringing this up and addressing this in a systemic way to make sure it doesn't get missed. And I think before I go into it, there's an anecdote or, or a saying that the paper mentions, which I think is really interesting that I hadn't heard before. And they said more mistakes in medicine are made by not looking than not knowing. And so I just thought that was really interesting as kind of like an introductory idea to this article. So the background of it is that they identify that existential distress and including psycho-existential distress is often not routinely screened for or asked about in palliative care programs or interventions. And they identify that part of the reason for this gap is often clinician discomfort with this topic. So they go on from that to describe an implementation program for palliative care where studies of a system 
systemic approach to quality and care improvement for psychoexistential distress have been few. So their goal is to find a way of, of like having an add-on to the ESAS. So they mentioned that screening assessments are prevalent in palliative care and that many people use will use the Edmonton Symptom Assessment Scale, but that in some places the kind of anxiety component of that has been removed because of clinician discomfort. And they also identify that it is possible to screen for existential distress, mentioning a distress thermometer, well, that this doesn't directly address the existential concerns. So their main message, having developed this screening tool and then training several hospital programs in Australia to use it, is that a training in a screening tool is effective both to better identify patient distress as well as to successfully train clinicians, uh, which improves clinician comfort and confidence with these topics. And they conclude that identifying psychoexistential distress in palliative care patients is important. So why this article is important, the article is implementation research. So in this field, uh, it shows clearly that a training program and a standardized screening process can be effective to identify and address psychoexistential concerns. This is noteworthy as this topic is sometimes viewed as too difficult to accurately define and identify, and then too difficult to address once you've identified it to make it worthwhile. So this article challenges that viewpoint, and I think provides a broad and uh, rigorous example of a program to do this and its efficacy. So the strength identified in the article is that this was rolled out across Australia. So it was a national study done in uh, six different institutions, and they developed this with using with lots of patients. Another strength is that they clearly identified the prevalence for psychoexistential distress in palliative patients that correlates with previous literature findings. And they really clearly described their kind of rigorous and effective implementation plan. So this training process was very intense. It was a three-hour workshop and involved role-playing. So it was really interesting to see kind of the details of their training and implementation plan. Some of the limitations that they describe was that they focused on service provision rather than patient outcomes. Like, did this actually help the patient? They focused more on how they made this, like how they did this training. And that they also identify that true system change is complex. So this didn't capture any kind of longitudinal changes in programs and whether this will continue. They also had some difficulties with um, differences in electronic data collection through the sites. And they acknowledge that it might not be fully generalizable across all service delivery models. So my additional comments were that I found it very inspiring and a very interesting approach to, to discuss this issue. They did certainly find that the clinicians had increased confidence, which I thought was interesting, both in talking about this and also in accessing resources to address the issues, although that wasn't the article's focus. They've kind of separated the results into the clinician results, the systemic results. So they had hopes that doing this sort of work would wake up up the system so that this psychoexistential distress wouldn't be something that was kind of glossed over. And then for the patient's results, they identified that they found the same results that were equivalent to previous research done, which they thought strengthened their results. Do you guys have any thoughts? You know, what I enjoyed about this, in addition to the implementation of it, because the context was, as, as you said, right, that they targeted palliative care programs, specialist palliative care services. So obviously then the question is always, what about the um, at the palliative care approach level, uh, what's happening there? Because um, that's an important level of palliative care delivery. The, the article describes how they developed the instrument. And I think it's worth looking at because they went to previous studies on various phenomena, including the sense of demoralization. Now, David Kassan is well known over the years for exploring this concept of demoralization. And so they went to all these papers. They described that in the article very well. And this article actually is open. So you can go online and you can actually download the whole paper. And what's nice about it is it's got the appendix, an appendix that's open 
And in the appendix is the instrument. So the cyclic in a symptom assessment scale. And just very quickly, the domains that it covers, or the it's a zero to ten scale, and you choose a number, zero being least distressed, ten being the most distressed. And it asks the person continuing um, how bothered, worried, or distressed are you today about each symptom. And then the, 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 um, the symptoms are anxiety, discouragement, trapped by illness, hopelessness, pointlessness, loss of control, loss of roles, depression, wish to die, and confusion. So really worth reading and, and, and accessible. And the other thing that they stressed, you know, as the barriers to this are, is timing. And so they, they made sure to say to you that, that doing this screening assessment, once people had been trained, took about two to three minutes. And the other interesting thing was it's quite short, the training. Right? It was, I think yes, it three hours. Exactly. And they did, in the paper, they report as well the pre versus post intervention level of comfort of the healthcare professionals, the private care clinicians who did this. Uh, with significant increases across quite a few of the areas, simply by learning how to apply this instrument and its components. It did raise a lot of questions and wonderings for me, uh, including, I was struck by, I think you mentioned this already, Adrian, is that in Australia, when they were implementing their symptom screening years ago, they took the ESAS and they modified it and they removed anxiety and depression which is why now they are looking to reintroduce it uh, to their systematic screening. So I'm curious how that impacts places like in Canada, where we tend to use the full ESAS with anxiety and depression still in it. And so then I was wondering, do we need an additional screening tool? Like, is, is anxiety and depression good enough? And if that uncovers something, then we make a referral to our expert colleagues who can then go into some of the more, you know, additional questions. Even though it's two minutes only, there's a lot of screenings we have to do. Each two minutes adds up in a 15-minute window. And so it made me wonder, and, you know, what role is there in this? Interesting questions. First of all, I think it's important to leave in depression, anxiety. I'm just wondering whether it was what happened, because I think in the article it says that in some places it dropped yeah. out, not in all. Yeah. So in some, it reminds me of... Quite a few years ago, I saw it being done in Portugal, the ESAS, and so they would do the full one upon admission and then the full one once a week, and then every day or two days, they would do a shortened version of it. And I think part of that came from some papers, and I remember Deb Dudgeon was one of the researchers that identified which of those symptoms tend to fluctuate a lot and which ones seem to be more stable. I don't think that osteoarthritis, anxiety, and depression suffices. And, and I think that's why the distress thermometer tries to be a quick, quick way to your point, Angarajan, that we can't do all these components all the time. But I think that we maybe underutilize something like the distress thermometer and then, then follow up with something like this. Yeah, and I think sometimes there's a tendency when you're doing an ESAS and asking about anxiety, depression, to kind of focus on a history of and then see if you think that their symptoms of anxiety and depression are kind of in keeping with their adjustment to their illness and then kind of moving on. So I think specifically focusing on this idea of hopelessness or pointlessness or the existential distress as well, and identifying that as something that has a huge impact on people's decision-making and quality of life is really important. It's a very excellent uh, question and uh, comment in the Q&A from uh, Dorothy Sang that 
this ties in very nicely with the first article um, around self-perceived burden and how these are all intermeshed together uh, with the pointlessness, hopelessness, depression. And so really, if we find some self-perceived burden, perhaps we need to go looking with the pieces and ask more questions, isn't it? Interestingly, it's not included in the pieces. They don't ask, are you feeling a burden? Unless it's under the domain of loss of control, but as the previous paper showed, it's not just loss of control. It's far more complex than that. I was also struck by one of the tables where they described the composition of the teams. And there was one team that had 24 psychosocial staff. And I was amazed by that team. And I was like, I need to go find that team and see how did they end up with 24 psychosocial staff. How do they find funding for it? That's right, yeah. Often underfunded. And, and they had the most patients. They had the most patients who went through the tools. They were the you know, big believers in this, right? And really speaks to the importance of psychosocial staff on your team, I think. Thank you very much. And I think you are again, Andy, the next one. I'm very glad that there was a uh, comment about how the last article tied in with the first one, because I think this one ties in very well with both of them again. So this article is called, How Can Advanced Care Planning Support Hope in Patients with Advanced Cancer and Their Families? A Qualitative Study as Part of the International Action Trial. And this article comes from the European Journal of Cancer Care. The background on this article is it was a nested study on HOPE, which was part of this large international action trial that studied the effect of advanced care planning programs on quality of life in patients with lung and colorectal cancer. So this is an international study. Part of that action trial was to do semi-structured qualitative interviews with people who participated in the advanced care planning discussions. And what this study did is it looked at the transcripts of those interviews, specifically with attention to themes around HOPE. They dealt with the international component of it by having different clinicians sort of who spoke the language of the person who the interview had, reading and pulling out the themes and then talking about it all together. They did all their analysis in English, though. The main message that they concluded their analysis of is that when it is grounded in authenticity and an awareness of a difficult reality, promoting empowerment and connection, advanced care planning conversations can provide grounds for hope. And I think it's important to stop for a moment and say that at the beginning of this article, they really do a great job of defining what they mean by hope and distinguishing this from the kind of general concept of hope, which is often phrased as, you know, living longer or curing illness and living forever. So they define hope uh, based on another study uh, by Johnson, and they look at it as embedded in relationships and very related to patient empowerment, kind of as hope within the context of a terminal illness and as a practice rather than just a static concept of accepting uncertainty. So they weren't looking in these interviews directly for someone talking about hopes they have. They were looking for these kind of surrounding concepts of hope and identifying them in the articles. Why this article is important is, as the article points out, one of the reasons that clinicians sometimes do not introduce or engage in advanced care planning conversations with patients is out of concern that by having these conversations about the realities of illness and end of life, they'll take away the patient's hope and thereby cause suffering and worsen quality of life. So this article challenges that notion by showing how advanced care planning conversations can support hope, in particular, hope as understood or defined in an end-of-life context around patient empowerment, relationship building, comfort, and quality of life. Viewing advanced care planning with this lens, particularly as supported by transcripts of patients who have been reflecting on advanced care planning conversations that they had, may encourage more physicians in palliative care and also beyond to introduce this topic more often and perhaps earlier. 
uh, strengths and limitations that they identified is that the interviews that they did, the qualitative interviews, were for people who specifically had engaged in this, these advanced care conversations as part of the action trial. So those people had had extensive training about doing these conversations in a particular way that take into account emotional and psychosocial aspects of planning, not just a biomedical model of end-of-life care planning, which by which I think they mean like, are you a DNR or are you, are you not, I think. So different results they acknowledge can be maybe found with different approaches to advanced care planning. They also said that different definitions or constructs of hope would also yield different findings, but fortunately they had kind of laid out what the, how exactly they were understanding hope themselves to kind of give us a sense. They acknowledge that some other translations could skew some understandings of the interviews, particularly as there wasn't like one person or a standardized translation process and then all of the transcripts were themed in English because they said they didn't have funding for that. They also say that they didn't look at the counter theme of hopelessness, which would have provided an interesting counterbalance to their looking at hope. I think the strengths of it are, as I said, kind of the opposites of these, like the fact that they had a broad look at across six different countries, I think is really interesting. And as we were talking about earlier, it's a bit unusual in articles like this, which is wonderful. And they do really define what they mean by hope, which helps contextualize their findings. I just really found that this was a, a kind of a remarkable fresh perspective on why advanced care planning is important and especially strong as it is drawn from and grounded in the experience of patients who have had advanced care planning fairly recently kind of across international settings. And I think it ties in very well to this, to the idea of uh, patients' feelings of being a burden because part of that article, the, the first one that we discussed said that, you know, talking about it is very important. And I think that advanced care planning can really provide a catalyst moment for patients and their families to talk together about what's coming in the future and kind of help with feeling more empowered that, that they're not having that loss of control. But I'd be interested to hear everyone else's thoughts too. I agree. It was a very fresh take on how ACP sort of, again, sort of spreads out and gets into psychosocial domains and touches on the first two articles, as I, as you mentioned. And I was also struck by, again, like, you know, these are trained ACP experts doing these conversations. And so it also ties into other questions I've, I've had about, you know, the role of specialist part of care, the role of experts like psychosocial staff. And, and I think that's a big role for them, meaning we shouldn't just give up and say, we don't have enough staff, let the oncologists do everything. We should also, I think, promote the involvement of experts because that is these additional things that they bring, that's time, but also these other skills. And this, again, to me, proves that, that, that it's not just ACP they probably will cover self-perceived burden and the PSAS and everything too. What struck me the most out of the paper was the one quote by one of the participants in the study. And the person describes how when they started the process, the discussion about on-skin planning, they were petrified, they were afraid. And as it unfolded, if they started seeing positive aspects to it. And by doing that conversation, we instilled them in that sense of looking forward to of things in the future and the things that could be done. So that one quote, I, I was very struck by it. I do need to respond, I think, to something that Ayngaran um, said. I think that part of care, including advanced planning, is everyone's business. And my question is, how can we make sure that we diffuse these competencies across all healthcare professions, across all, prof all professions and all sectors of care or settings of care, and not only in the private care specialist area, I think you know, that is important, but I think a lot of these discussions occur and should be occurring upstream before they even often consider a private care specialist team. A really fascinating paper, as I said, that one quote was just quite, quite amazing. And I think this paper is actually available as well, open. 
So I encourage people to look it up and, and read it. Moving on to the next one then. So the first three were tied in, the, the themes um, connected nicely to each other. The last one is the proverbial mouth is something completely different. And this paper looked at the treatment of positive urine cultures at the end of life and the effect on terminal delirium management. And that was published in the American Journal of Hospice and Private Medicine towards the end of last year. And the authors highlight that the decision to initiate antibiotics in hospice patients. So by hospice here, clearly it's for patients where they describe it towards the end of life. And the hospice, the way it's described, is a place for end of life care. So the last days and weeks of life are rather than acute or tertiary, which might be earlier on. And they say the decision to initiate antibiotics uh, very near end of life is complex. They highlight that antibiotics may be used to treat urinary tract infection-related symptoms, but that those symptoms can also be managed by other methods, such as in the case of a delirium related to the UTI, antipsychotics, um, and then symptoms with antipyretics and antispasmodics. They highlight that currently there are no studies that compare symptoms between those who receive antibiotics and those who do not. I must say that sparked my curiosity because I do think that somewhere we had there have been some papers around that. The study objective was to compare antipsychotic and benzodiazepine consumption for delirium management. So they basically compared uh, the antipsychotic medications and the benzodiazepine uh, medications, and, and then they converted them, and the um, pain medications as well, they converted them using equivalent tables to haloperidol. In the case of antipsychotics, they used conversion tables to calculate the dose of benzodiazepines based on the equivalence with lorazepam, and in the case of opioids, with morphine. And then the secondary objective is to characterize antibiotic usage and compare opioid antipyretic and anticholinergic consumption with managed and non-delirium UTI symptoms such as fever, pain, and bladder spasms. They used a retrospective chart review of patients admitted to this 22-bed hospice, residential hospice uh, unit from March the 1st, 2016 to December the 31st, 2018. So what's that about over two years, um, almost three years. And charts were included if a patient was admitted for delirium and had a PPS score, so Private Performance Scale score of 40% or less. So clearly these are patients near the end of life. And that the urine culture was positive for organism growth and that the patient died while in the hospice unit. And the medication use was tallied for the five days prior to the date of death. So in this, they ended up with 61 charts. So a total of 467 urine samples of which 208 were found to be positive for organism growth. So it sounds like they were doing it routinely on all uh, patients, I, pres I presume patients presenting with a delirium, they did the uh, routine screening of, of, the, of the urine. And of those 61 patients that were included in the analysis, 31 had received antibiotics and 26 had not. Cancer was the most frequent diagnosis. Actually, it was about 50% were cancer, the others were the non-cancer patients. The antibiotic treatment group died on average six days following the culture, the urinalysis and culture, versus the antibiotic negative group died on average six days following the culture, whereas the ones that were treated with antibiotics died 8.2 days later, um, and that was significant. Clearly, the design of the study is such that it's difficult to, to look at cause effect here. It's an observation that they noted. 
There were no differences in medication consumption between the groups during the five days prior to death. The antibiotic treated group, not surprisingly, had more documented urinary tract specific infection symptoms versus those who were not treated. Perhaps not surprisingly, I suspect the the role there of giving the antibiotic at that stage was to try and reduce the symptoms. And more than half of the antibiotic courses were discontinued prematurely. And I wonder how many of those were actually therapeutic trials. Because I know in my clinical practice, uh, and I've also observed as we said, I say, look, we're not sure if this will make a difference or not. Let's do a therapeutic trial. And if it's not seen, if it's not working in you know, three or four days' time, we can look at discontinuing it. So I suspect that somewhere could be discontinuation of a therapeutic trial rather than people motive. So the author's main message uh, messages were study the study did not find a significant difference in antipsychotic or benzodiazepine use in the last days of life, uh, suggesting that antibiotics for suspected UTI during this time may not improve terminal delirium symptom severity. Antibiotic initiation at end of life is a complicated discussion and use should be with thoughtful purpose as to the intended outcomes. Now, they do highlight the limitations, and I really want to highlight these limitations. First of all, it's a retrospective chart review, and there's no description of how they assess the symptoms in a standardized or systematic way. There's no mention of the symptom profiles and how these were assessed, as I said. And the use of medication consumption in this study was a surrogate marker of delirium severity. You know, that's not always the case. And they excluded patients with PPS greater than 40%, where perhaps this may have been more impactful in terms of improving their UTI-related um, symptoms. I must say I found this interesting because back in 1998, I did a study uh, at the private care unit in Edmonton of infections, the prevalence of infections on the private care unit. And the private care unit where 30% of patients were being discharged alive. So in other words, it was acute private care unit with quite a few patients still being discharged. And, and we published results of that, and we also published the results of which bugs were we identifying, where were the infections, so UTI, respiratory, skin, etc. And I remember at the time when we submitted for publication that the letters we received were fascinating because they included things like you medicalizing private care. And, and we shouldn't be even looking at those things, but I think we should, right? And, and uh, unfortunately, you keep looking and see, okay, what exactly is the role? Um, and in this case, this group tackled the, the, the case of at the very end of life. And I think with that, let's um, open up for, uh, for a discussion. There was a question in the uh, Q&A that I answered uh, because it was a very specific question and I looked it up in the article. And that's the route of admit antibiotic administration. And, it, you know, the article talked about how more than half was oral, quarter was rectal, and a, a little bit less was intramuscular. I thought this article was very interesting. I had I had very mixed feelings as I was reading it because, yeah. you know, and it, it, I mean, it does it does capture this very specific situation where it seemed anyway, as I read along, I, I kind of got a better sense that a patient is delirious. And then, and it, it didn't seem necessarily connected to urinary tract symptoms, although they did look for that for documentation of that. But when someone is delirious, like, and it, 
they mentioned that it has a lot to do with patient and family beliefs and factors and the importance of it. But I think that that's what it often would come down to in this trial of an antibiotics and someone is delirious at end of life and then you end up with a positive culture. Yeah, I think that was a really important, I was glad that they mentioned it because that's what was in my mind as I was reading through a huge factor in whether or not to trial an antibiotic. That's a very good point because we know from studies that on average, delirium in patients with advanced disease is multifactorial in etiology. So often quite a few factors all at the same time. There are factors that reduce the threshold of becoming delirious and there's many other, there are many other things happening at the same time. So I know. And and terminal delirium looks like any other delirium until until time has gone on and then it becomes very clear what it is. So it's yeah. it's hard. I'm just wondering if there's any other questions or comments. I did struggle with some of the methodological inclusion-exclusion criteria and whether this really will change my practice because we don't know the population who, you know, again, you're treating because you you think it might be and uh, you you haven't gotten the urine analysis yet and, and maybe they got a bit better. And then I also struggled with, they only looked at the last five days of medications and Perhaps on the sixth and the seventh day before, they actually the antibiotic positive maybe actually had lots of antipsychotic use, and it actually dropped because the antibiotics helped. <laughs> um, and and we don't know the answer to that. And so I, I struggled therefore with uh, some of the methodological things. Yeah, I agree. And also the way, you know, as I said, assessing the symptoms. I think for me that the, the useful thing of the article is, and I think highlighted that is where the pros and cons, benefits versus burdens. Sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's not. But as long as we keep thinking about that and keep, uh, you know, we don't get into some automatic rut of either no, not at all, or yes, all the time, but that we uh, individualize the, the care plan. So the honorable mentions in this episode is a study by Van Esch and colleagues. Uh, when a dying patient is asked to participate in a double-blind placebo-controlled clinical trial and symptom control, the decision-making process and experiences of relatives and again, related to that is the second paper, which looks at the impacts of partnering with cancer patients in palliative care research, a systematic review and meta-synthesis. And I think these two go in very nicely with the last paper that we presented, where these studies do make a difference over time. And we start understanding the phenomenon better and hopefully come up with uh, better ways of, of, of caring for patients and their families. And the next one is a study on patient-related barriers to the prescription of cannabinoid-based medicines in private care, and that was published in private medicine reports. And then lastly, there's a big one, fascinating one that I'm, I'm hoping that we can actually do as a separate webinar altogether as part of the ECHO series, and that's a group that looked at the inclusion of essential components of the World Health Organization private care development model in national private care plans, and it's an analysis in 31 countries. So please do share this with your colleagues and friends, pass it on. And to my panelists, my colleagues, uh, Adrian and Aigaran, thanks so much for joining us. To the teams and the members of the teams that are monitoring these journals and submitting what they think um, is worth highlighting in these uh, webinars and podcasts, thank you very much. And to a fantastic support team at Pallion, Diana, Alia, and James, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I'm James O'Hearn, and I hope you found it both enjoyable and informative. If you'd like to learn more about the Journal Watch program or our other palliative care ECHO project activities, feel free to email us at echo at pallium.ca. 
That's echo at P-A-L-L-I-U-M dot C-A. Or visit our website at www.echopalliative.com. The music for this episode is Dazed by Airtone. Copyright 2012, licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 3.0 license. You can find Airtone's music at dig.ccmixter.org. Today's episode was produced by Diana Vince. See you soon.